morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, where we'll be focusing our attention as we study for a moment to prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper that we're about to partake. We have visitors with us. We want you to know that we're really glad that you're here. We're always appreciative when people take the time and make the effort to be here with us, uh, especially those who are traveling and you make special plans because you honor the Lord and you want to remember this is the day that the Lord has set aside for us to gather as his people, the day where we commemorate the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, the day on which he rose, the first day of the week. And so you're to be commended for uh, your effort in that, and we're thankful that you've chosen to be here with us. we just love to be, make ourselves available to do anything we can to help you to know more about God or to be right with God. Thank you for being here. As Garrett mentioned, this is our fifth Sunday service, which is a time that the elders have set aside to focus our attention on the Lord's Supper in this time. And so what I am going to do for the next few minutes is to speak from this text and try to prepare our minds by thinking in some different ways about a text of Scripture that might help us in remembering Jesus and partaking in the way that we know we should. It's very interesting to me, since uh, we started doing this and kind of had this format change where we're going to do this on the fifth Sunday... Um, it's kind of a challenge for me as a preacher because typically we have a few texts that we talk about when we talk about the Lord's Supper, and we'll read those texts and sort of say similar things. And sometimes, you know, we can focus on the Lord's Supper itself, and we'll read about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, or we'll read about Paul's instructions to Corinth. And sometimes we'll talk about the cross and what, what happened on the cross, what Jesus did on the cross. We can look at the suffering of Jesus, and uh, you know we'll talk about the pain and the different things that happened to him. Uh, but once you get through a few of those, you know, well, what, what's next? And uh, it's, it's very interesting, though, once you start looking at the Scriptures with, through these eyes to say, what would help us as we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper? You begin to see it everywhere. And so I found it in this text, in Ephesians chapter 2, that I want to share with you for a few minutes In Ephesians 2 and verse 13, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." So you see, in this passage, we don't see anything directly about the Lord's Supper. In fact, there are only passing references to the cross and the blood of Christ. But I want us to think for a few minutes this morning about how what Jesus did on the cross does what Paul calls killing the hostility. So that's what I want us to think about for a few minutes this morning. Now, this passage is addressed to Gentile Christians. You see that in verse 11 where he says, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. So I think we need to get into the head for a minute of what it would be like to be a Gentile Christian. These are people who did not grow up going to synagogue. They did not grow up knowing about the true God. They did not grow up studying the Old Testament scriptures. These were people who grew up in a pagan world who did definitely have a sense of the divine, and yet the gods that they knew were capricious and certainly didn't have their best interests at heart. They were gods who did what they wanted to do, and you were just sort of a a hapless victim of the gods. And yet when they learn about the true God, particularly as he is revealed through Jesus, 
they see a different vision, a God who loves them and who wants to bless them and help them. And there is also this. The Gentile Christians would have known very well the sting of the elitism and separatism of their Jewish neighbors. They knew that Jews looked down on them as unclean. They knew that Jews thought that they were ignorant and that they were immoral. And so if you grew up in that environment, imagine what kind of impact that would have on you and how you viewed Jews around you. So I want us to have that thought process in mind as we work through that text, uh, work through this text this morning. So what Paul is wanting them to do is to think through how the cross has changed them. So let's begin by saying this. He talks about where you used to be. Look in verse 11 with me. In verse 11 it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So he says, first of all, remember where you used to be. Remember that at one time you were just Gentiles in the flesh, just uncircumcision. He mentions that in verse 11, that they were called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision. That's interesting wording, isn't it? Because it implies that that might not be entirely accurate. But he says, you know, in a physical sense, the Jews looked down on you. You were lesser because you were not a part of the circumcision promise, the promise made to Abraham, the covenant with Abraham that Jews had a part of. So... The language is interesting because you can see the disdain with which Jews viewed Gentiles. Now, verse 12, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So remember where you used to be. And he uses a number of phrases here. You were separated from Christ. So that is that you were distant from God and distant from God's representative, his Messiah that he had sent. And he also says you were strangers from the commonwealth of Israel. You were distant from what it was to be an Israelite and strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, I just want to remind you, I think sometimes we forget this, that there were tremendous blessings associated with being a Jew. Paul recounts this in Romans chapter 9, He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. The idea there is that they have been accepted as sons and daughters of God. The glory, that is the the glory of God, the Shekinah glory that comes into the tabernacle and the temple. The covenants, the different promises God made at different times to their fathers and to them. The giving of the law, that's the law of Moses. The worship, that special series of acts that they're supposed to do uh, in both the tabernacle and the temple. And the promises, including the promise to Abraham and also the promise of a Messiah, all of those promises were given to Jews. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. So there's a lot to being a Jew. That's what Paul is saying. There is tremendous advantage, he says, to being a Jew. And now he tells the Gentiles, you didn't have any of that. You were strangers to all of that. You were alienated from what God was doing to Israel, the commonwealth of Israel. Those promises God made to Abraham, they just didn't apply to them. They weren't for them. Only in the indirect way, through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, the all nations might be helped, but but I don't know, even that might not truly involve the Gentiles in the way that the gospel reveals they did. He also says there in verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, when you don't have a promise... 
you don't really have hope. I don't know how much you've thought about that. But if there's no assurance that things are going to get better, if you don't have somebody who can guarantee something or at least assert something, then there really is no reason for hope, is there? And so there is both the demoralizing part of having no hope, and then he also says, without God in the world. That doesn't mean that they didn't have gods. They certainly had gods. They just didn't have a knowledge of the true God. And that was a pretty awful state. What I want you to notice is that this sense of alienation and that sense of exclusion is two-pronged in this text. In fact, those two prongs, it's hard to even separate. On the one hand, they are distant from God, and on the other hand, they are distant from other people. They're separated from God, and they are separated from the people of God. And I think we understand what that's like. Because in a very real way, we understand that to be separated from God, to have the problems in our spiritual lives, they affect how we engage with other people, and they affect the relationships we have with others. So that very often we can see separation from others as a result of us having our spiritual lives out of order. Now, I understand, when you look at this passage, it feels a lot like you're reading somebody else's mail, right? This is like, well, I'm not... I mean, most of us are probably ethnic Gentiles, but we probably didn't grow up with this distinction that we see here, you know, the idea of Jew and Gentile being so separate. But I will say, we know what it is to be far from God and separated from Christ. And I will say, we know that spiritual alienation often leads to us damaging our own relationships with other people. So, what Paul says is, remember where you used to be. Then he says... Remember what Jesus did on the cross. Look in verse 13. In verse 13 it says, But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is one of those all-important but statements. You see, the text is going in a certain direction, and then it reverses when you get to the but in verse 13. So it's going in the direction of everything was terrible for you, and you were alienated from God and alienated from people. You were hateful and hating one another, and now but... But now things have changed. Now, in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is a reference to the death of Jesus, the sacrificial death that brings us near to God. It is the vision of people who very often in the Old Testament were called far off. In fact, in the temple, Gentiles were not allowed to come too close to God. In the, in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the tax collector will not even approach the temple, but it says he stood afar off. And here he says, those who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's what Jesus did for you on the cross. He brought you near. You belong here now. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He is our peace himself. And what that means is in a very literal and very physical way, his body made peace between Jew and Gentile. Now, how did that happen? In his death, Jesus abolished the law of Moses, is what verse 15 attests. And that was good news for Gentiles. That was good news for Gentiles. It meant Gentiles could be God's people too. And that couldn't happen before. Now, there was a laborious and difficult process that a Gentile could go through to be a proselyte, but even proselytes were sort of second-class citizens in the commonwealth of Israel. This is not about 
you could work your way into where you could get grafted in. This is God pulling you in and accepting you by the blood of his son. The law allowed Jews and only Jews to come to God. And Jesus opens up a new pathway, a pathway that is not about you being the best Jew. It's not about your ethnic identity. It's about God's grace given to those who believe. It says in verse 14, that he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I don't know how familiar you are with the architecture of the temple. But in the outer court, which is called the court of the Gentiles, there was a stone wall between the court of the Gentiles and the actual temple. Gentiles were not allowed to go into the temple. And there was a sign that was posted on that wall that said, No one of another nation is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple, and whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. They were serious. Gentiles were never allowed to approach God. And there was a wall that was more than a symbol. And Paul says, He has abolished in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus tore the wall down so that everyone can come in and approach. In a similar figure, the veil in the temple is torn in two, indicating everyone can come in where only the priest could come before. There was a literal wall of separation between Jew and Gentile and between Gentile and God, and Jesus broke down the wall. So in verse 16, it says, now he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So now he can bring both, both Jew and Gentile, in one body together before God. And he did that through the cross. There is peace. The hostility between man and God is gone. The hostility between man and man is gone. In verse 17, it says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. I love that. I think it's interesting. We kind of glide right by that statement. Did you notice it said that Jesus came and preached in Ephesus? Did you notice that? You can comb through the Gospels. You won't find Jesus in Ephesus. That's far away from Israel, by the way. No, Jesus came and preached in the sense that his representatives came and preached. But the point of that text in verse 17 is that Jesus preached the same message to Jew and Gentile, and they believed the same message. So what we're reading here is that what Jesus did on the cross was to create a new way of access to God that was not there before, that it was not just about, are you a Jew? Did you keep these commandments perfectly? But it was about whoever you are. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God's Son? Are you willing to obey? And that is good news for everyone. It's good news for Jew and Gentile, and it's good news for us on down the line historically from them. The third thing Paul talks about here is we need to think about where we are now. Look at verse 18 now. Verse 18, for through him we both, remember that's Jew and Gentile, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So through him we can both go into where God is. Our brother, Brother Jim, mentioned this in his prayer, that we're able to approach God, that we're able to pray to God through the blood of Christ, that we approach because of what Jesus has done for us. We have access. And it doesn't matter who we are. This is not about only the really 
important people among us or famous or wealthy or good-looking people among us. We all have access, all of us, and we all do it together. By one spirit, we go to God. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So remember how he said back in verse, uh, it was verse 12, that we were alienated and that we were strangers to the covenants of promise. Here he says, you are no longer strangers. You are no longer aliens. Now he says, you are fellow citizens with the saints. The saints, so a very, very frequently used term in the Old Testament to describe the people of God throughout all ages. These are God's special holy people. And he says, now you're them too. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. We sang just a moment ago, we are now a family of which the Lord is head. That's what he's saying, the household of God. We are his people, we're his family. And so we call each other brother and sister because we are now in a new relationship because of what Jesus has done for us. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he changes the the metaphor here. We've gone from a family now to the actual physical house, the building. And he talks about how we are being built together. We're built on the cornerstone and we're built on the foundation. Cornerstone's Jesus. Foundation is the apostles and prophets. But we are the building. What does that mean? That means that God wants to live in us. We are a temple for God. Now, That's way different from where we used to be. Distant from God, hateful and hating one another. Now we have been brought near and we are built into something new. Now, awesome things are promised to us. And I want you to notice that that blessing is twofold. It's two-pronged. Part of it is about a new fellowship and relationship with God that we didn't have before. And part of it is about a new relationship with each other. Did you notice that? He talks about how we are fellow citizens with the saints, that we are members, plural, of the household of God, that we are being joined together, verse 21. Look in Ephesians 3 and verse 6 with me. It says, Ephesians 3 and verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and, this is important, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the promise that we were alienated from before. The promise to Abraham. In your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. We now have a share in that promise. But notice, even in Ephesians 3.6, those terms are plural because we inherit those things together. So where are we now? Now we are one body. That is a heavy emphasis in Scripture. There are not different bodies dependent on our social class or our race or our language. There are not even different bodies because there are different congregations in different places. There is one body. And we are one body as the people of God. Now we are joined together. We are being built together into a temple for God. Now we have been brought near. Now we're part of the covenant. Now we can inherit the promises Now there are no racial differences, there are no class distinctions, there are no lesser peoples. Jesus has accomplished this through the cross. It did not exist before the cross, and now it does.
And when we gather like this to partake of this supper, what we are doing is celebrating what God has done. Declaring that I still remember where I used to be and that what changed in this was not me. What changed in this was something God did, God initiated, and God has brought about. Now, certainly, I had my part to play. But I know that God is the author of my salvation. And so we look back to where we've been, and we look back to what Jesus did on the cross. Not just the pain, not just the shame of it, but the goal of it. What was the point? To bring people to God and to take away what divided us from one another. And then we look at where we are now. We count our blessings in Christ. And we know that we don't deserve what we have. We don't deserve each other. There is also a broader sense in which when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are united with all Christians everywhere who take this supper, who remember, because there is only one body. And we reflect that unity in our group because we take it together and we wait for one another and we want to be sure everyone has a part in what we are doing this morning. But there is a solidarity in a mutual honoring of the wishes of Jesus here and wherever there are people of God who honor those wishes. So I particularly want to encourage us as we partake to remember that Jesus killed the hostility that there are bonds of Christian fellowship that we share with each other because of what Jesus did on the cross. You realize probably most of us wouldn't know each other if not for Jesus. I understand that we have families and we probably know our family. But what brings us together is not any kind of similarity of a physical nature. The only thing that unites us here is what Jesus did for us. And our willingness to follow him. Jesus killed the hostility. And I encourage you to ask yourself. Is there hostility in your heart towards your brother? Do you have something that's between you and a brother or sister in Christ? Is there an issue that needs to be resolved? Is there a weight that needs to be given to the Lord? And I want to say that may even be a brother or sister in Christ who is not a part of this congregation? Is there someone that you need to reach out to? I want to say, Jesus killed the hostility. And there should be no hostility between brothers and sisters in Christ. If groups that are as different as Jews and Gentiles can live in peace, can't we do that? Can't we be in harmony? The Lord's Supper is a time when we put our finger on our spiritual pulse and we ask the question, how am I doing? How is this? How is my relationship with my God? And I want to encourage you for this to be a time when you also consider, how is my relationship with my brothers and sisters? Those thoughts need to be two-pronged, going not only vertically but also horizontally. So I want to encourage you to examine not only your own heart, but your relationships with your brethren. To root out hatred 
and bitterness and jealousy and anger, to let Jesus kill the hostility. So let's think about these things as we partake. We'll invite the men up to service the Lord's Supper. You would open your Bible with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. I appreciate so much the support and the participation of all of us as we have remembered the death of Jesus and what it has meant for us. But I wanted to take these last couple of minutes and sort of push that forward. We've been thinking about the wonderful way that God has blessed us, and there is, there is a pressure that we should feel to not leave it there, to not just celebrate that, not just remember it, but also to live differently because of it. In Ephesians 4 and verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Think about that phrase. You've been called with this great calling. You've been given this great blessing. And now he says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of what you've been called to. The idea is, if this is so great, then then we have to up our level. We've got to live in a way that is somehow in sync with what has been done for us. It seems to me that sometimes we get to be a little bit like Pharaoh. Uh, Remember, Pharaoh would have this feeling where he was very concerned about, you know, there being frogs everywhere or there being, you know, the water turned to blood or whatever it is. And uh, he'd get really upset and he'd ask for God to help him and God would help him and give him this great deliverance and take everything away. And then almost immediately, Pharaoh completely forgot and went right back to normal. It seems to me that sometimes we're like Pharaoh. We know that we have a problem. We know that we need God's help. We ask for God's help. It's desperate. Things are bad. And then as soon as we get it, we just say, oh, glad that's over. And completely forget the lessons that we learned in our desperate state and the salvation that we've been given. And then maybe what that should mean going forward. Paul says, walk in a way worthy of the calling to which you were called. Jesus has done more for us than just save us from our sins. He has liberated us to a new life. And that new life is what we now pursue. And I want you to think about that with me for just a moment. In Ephesians 4 and verse 17, Ephesians 4 and verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now remember, he's talking to Gentile Christians. But he says, you don't live and walk the way the rest of the Gentiles do. You're different. And what he means here is that the response they should have to what Jesus has done for them should change the way they think. They don't think the way they used to think in the futility of their mind where they're desperate to think about evil and to pursue new courses of evil. He says, no, your mind has been freed. And I just want to say what he is teaching us here is that we have to be careful about the way our thinking continues after we have been saved because we can return to the kind of thinking that worldly people do. And if we do, it is inevitable as a matter of course that what we think will eventually become what we do and who we are. And so he says, don't think like Gentiles think. He says in Ephesians 4 and verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Remember, Jesus has killed the hostility. And so he says, now we walk in love. We don't hold things against people. We're not bitter and angry people. We are free people. We are loving people. We are forgiving people because we have been forgiven. So, not only do we need to be careful about the way we think, here we have to be careful about the way we treat others. And the words that we say to them and the emotions we hold in our hearts against them and the way that we interact with them. In Ephesians 5 and verse 8, Ephesians 5 and verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is right, good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Part of walking worthy of the calling is also going to mean that we make better moral choices. That we're not going to get involved again in the things that got us in this fix in the first place. And so we're going to be careful to walk like children of light and to not have anything to do with the works of darkness. It's not because we're too good to do those things. It's because we've already done them. We know what that's like. And we know that's not the will of the God who's called us to something better. Walk as children of light. He's going to say in verse 15 that we walk, oh, how did he put it? Walk not as unwise, but as wise. So there is a part of what we're talking about that means we have to make better choices. Sometimes with moral choices, we get into the idea that someone's telling me what to do, and I don't want anybody telling me what to do. That's not the way Paul frames this, although certainly God has the right to tell us what to do. Paul frames this instead as, you're a different kind of person now. You are a light person, so don't get involved in darkness anymore. You've changed. Jesus has taken you out of that, so now live that way. So I want to give you these thoughts, because I imagine that something in that array hits each one of us differently this morning. That maybe it's your thinking that you've allowed to get away from you, and you're not careful about the way you've been feeding your mind with things that are not from spiritual sources and not benefiting you. Or maybe it's about the way you're treating people, and there are people that you know you shouldn't be angry at, or people you know you should treat differently, and so you need to learn to walk in love. Or maybe it's that there are moral choices you've been making that you know need to stop because you know you're a child of light and you're living in the darkness. Whatever it is, I challenge you to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And if you need to make something known this morning and have us pray with you and for you, or if you're ready to be baptized to become a child of God, if there's a need that you have this morning, use this time to make that right as we stand and sing to encourage you.